And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620, or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, iTunes, Google Play, Podbeam, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. Today is the first show since the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, it is uh, remarkable to think that we are a year out and what that means. And so today we're going to talk about a, a number of things. We're going to talk about what that has meant for the, the life movement, thousands of lives saved, uh, thousands of lives that were in uh, babies that were born that might not have otherwise been born, legislation around the country that, that is going in the right direction, but also understanding there's some states that have gone in the wrong direction. It's some legislation that's gone in the wrong direction, but ultimately it's a, it's a net positive. It's a win for the pro-life movement. Uh, but I want to start with, I wrote a piece over uh, for the Heritage House. Heritage House is an organization that works with uh, pro-life communities across the country and around the world to, uh, to provide uh, materials and publications and, and different things. And, and, uh, they asked if I would write a piece, uh, and I wrote it probably eight months ago. I don't know, some, somewhere around in there. And they were they were, they put out a digital magazine that they released just the other day uh, called "This Is the Year," and the the magazine is designed to say the the year after Dobbs after the Dobbs decision, the year after Roe was overturned. What does that year look like? This is the year for fill in the blank. And the piece that I wrote was called, This is the Year of the Ebenezer. And so I want to share that with you and kind of talk about why my thoughts uh, went there. Uh, so this is the year of the Ebenezer. I grew up in rural Tennessee where people were sparse, amenities were slim, but love abounded. This love was illustrated on a regular basis by my grandma, Pauline Wood. I could share story after story of her love for me, but... One instance that stands out above the rest was joining her for sunrise service on Easter. We would begrudgingly get up before the sun, put on our Sunday best, and join her and my granddad for worship in a small country church that saw its attendance numbers double on that special Sunday every spring. I can still hear her voice today singing those classic hymns that populated so much of my childhood. One such hymn is, Come Thou Fount. The lyrics of this song, written in 1758, still ring true today. There is one particular line in this hymn that has permeated my thoughts in light of the Supreme Court's ruling on June 24th of 2022 that saw Roe finally overturned. And the song says this, Here I raise my Ebenezer. These words, however simple, carry a great deal of weight as they reference the prophet Samuel's raising an Ebenezer to recognize God's grace and mercy on his people. So how does this line from a centuries-old hymn and a reference to an Old Testament passage connect with June 24th? Samuel's commemoration of this moment wasn't a throwaway action to act as a placeholder for a short time. Instead, this action was designed to honor God and to show generations just how good and gracious the Father was to his people in their time of need. I'm sure if we take the time, we can all pinpoint our own Ebenezer moments where we recognize God's goodness and desire to leave markers for those that come after us to see those moments in the same way we see them. This is why I believe that the overturning of one of the most wrong-headed and destructive court decisions in the history of our country 
is an Ebenezer moment for the church. We have an opportunity to let generations know of what God did through the work of his people's consistent prayer, advocacy, and service. These Ebenezer moments are a reminder to all that live, serve, and worship in states that continue to see abortion as the norm. It is not lost on me that I get to live, serve, and worship in a state that ended lawful abortions in 2022. The raising of our Ebenezer doesn't immediately signal that all is well or problems won't still arise. The prophet Samuel wasn't signaling to God's people that all was well and life would be easy from here on out. Instead, he was encouraging them to take a moment, no matter how brief, to recognize God's intervention on their behalf. The storms would still come, and the memories of hard days gone by would still linger, but the recognition of God's goodness in that moment would set a trajectory for those that would come later that God's grace is ever-present and a source of life in the good and, yes, even the bad times. A court ruling in the summer of 2022 isn't the end goal, but it is a marker and a giant first step to a United States where abortion is unthinkable, undesired, and non-existent. So we raise our Ebenezer today, but we continue our service tomorrow. We can do this with confidence, knowing that the God that was ever-present in the days of Samuel is ever-present with me and you today. And just as we look to the Ebenezer Samuel raised all those years ago, our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids will look back at 2022 in the same way as life saw a victory when victory seemed out of reach. And, and isn't it a, a beautiful thing? Look, I know a lot of people uh, argue, and, and, and I'm part of that. I mean, I add to the fray in terms of being passionate and bold in our stance for life and on the things, things of God and the things that matter and the things that we hold in high value. But, but the reality is we must take times to recognize God's graciousness and goodness in our lives. Even when it's a court decision. And so in this moment, you know, I could say, well, there's a lot of work to do and we still got to do this and we still got to do that. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I talk about on the show every single week. But the reality is we need to recognize these Ebenezer moments. And we were a part of that. Whether it be through our prayers, through our advocacy, through our contacting legislators through our own being. Maybe, maybe somebody listening to this show is a legislator and they, they participated in voting for a, a piece of legislation in the state of Tennessee that would ultimately outlaw abortion. Folks, that, that is for the history books, but it's also a moment that the church, that God's people should look on and say that this victory didn't happen in a silo. This victory didn't happen simply because of the politics of it all. This victory didn't happen simply because some judges were appointed to the bench. No, this victory happened because of all of those things, because the church praying, because the church speaking out, because God's people influencing their legislators, because of God's people influencing those that would sit in the Oval Office, because of God's people influencing who would be appointed to the bench. This has been in the works for many, many years. Roe was the law of the land for almost 50 years. It changed the landscape. It changed the landscape of our society and of our culture, and we're still dealing with the lasting ramifications of that, even though Roe has been overturned. Yet, here we stand a year later, 
And it is an Ebenezer moment. It is a moment that we would look back and that, that we would draw a line in the sand and say, here is when we stood. Here is when God showed up. Now, the reality is God showed up all through those 50 years, even when Roe was the law of the land, even when, when legislation didn't go our way. We've even seen since the Dobbs decision, some uh, state constitutions were tried, they, they tried to amend and, and make changes and they failed. That doesn't mean God was distant. It just means that, that look, there's going to still be uphill battles. But June 24th will forever be an Ebenezer moment in the Wood family. It will forever be an Ebenezer moment for Hope Resource Center. It will forever be an Ebenezer moment for the pro-life movement, for pro-life politicians, for pro-life judges. Like, like This is what we have to do. We have to recognize, even in the face of calamity, even in the face of chaos, even in the face of a culture that seems to be spiraling out of control, we recognize an Ebenezer moment. Because although it seems at times on a daily basis that our government, that our communities, that our culture is running away from the things of God, we get a glimpse of a June 24th. We get a glimpse of sanity. We get a glimpse of the garden. We get a glimpse of reality that God is still active and working. You see, so... so there has been some that have said, look, we can't gloat. We don't need to celebrate. We don't need to take a victory lap because of June 24th. I would say respectfully, that's nonsense. Now, you don't need to be a jerk. and I don't know what, maybe gloating is not the right word, but the church and God's people should 100% celebrate the ending of Roe. In the same way that the church and God's people celebrated the ending of slavery. You, you see, we, we should celebrate things that bring glory to God. Abortion does not bring glory to God. So a law in the freest, most prosperous country in the nation that offends God, when that law is overturned, when the court makes the right decision and rids our country of that, as they did on June 24th, that is an Ebenezer moment. That is worth celebrating. And, and we need to say as much. Are there people in our church pews that are hurting? Certainly. Are there people in our church pews that may dis disagree with that assessment? Maybe. But right is right and wrong is wrong. And we're going to hold a high value on the things that God holds a high value on. You know what he holds a high value on? Life. Why? Because he created it. Because every life in the womb, outside the womb, bears the image of God. That requires something of us. So I'm not going to apologize for celebrating June 24th. That is going to be a marker in my life forever. And I pray it's a marker in your life. Because we either value life or we don't. There is no gray area. 
and so when, when folks say we need abortion, that's an offense to the things of God. And we should call it out as such. Now, what we also need to understand is because we, we saw abortion rule the land for almost five decades, a court decision overnight isn't going to change that. And so we're going to get pushback. Why are we going to get pushback? Because the enemy is here to kill, steal, and destroy. You're going to get pushback not just from folks outside the church, but even some folks in the church. The question is, are we prepared to stand strong and stand bold on why we feel the way we feel and why we believe the way we believe? I was having a conversation the other day with my dad. And he was talking about something and he said, hey, I read an article and the article said, you know, I just think we need to pick our battles. Now, I'm not going to get into exactly what the article is about, but the, the point that the author of that article was trying to make is, you know, sometimes we create conflict. And sometimes that creation of conflict is, is, is not useful or fruitful. And so let's just pick our battles. But, but may, I, may I make an observation here? The reason we are where we are in our society, in our culture, is because many in the church have said, let's just pick our battles. And in doing that, we've never stood strong on anything. Now, that's not all the church. That's not every pastor. But when we say things like we should pick our battles, what many people mean by that is I don't want to battle anything or anybody. But the reality is there are going to be things that we must stand strong on, and, and you can call it a battle, you can you, whatever you want to call it, but the reality is if, if there are people in our society that are going out of their way to end life in the womb, that is the battle we need to step into and call out. If the enemy is intentionally seeking to kill, steal, and destroy, then we better be ready. To intentionally engage and prevent that and put people and put put things in the proper place as we value the things that God values. A lot of what we're seeing in our culture today is because many of us have said, let's pick our battles. And what we really mean is I'm not going to engage at all. I'm just going to live my cushy life. And then you end up where we are. Thankfully. We're seeing some folks stand strong and stand bold, and I pray that you are standing with us. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation, I want to, I've been talking a lot lately about what we're seeing in our culture, and, and and if you've been listening for a long time, look, we, we spend a great deal of our time talking about the life and abortion issue, rightfully so. It deserves our attention. It deserves our, our time. But all these things are linked together. So when we talk about infertility, when we talk about marriage numbers declining, when we talk about gender and identity, when we talk about abortion and life, from a biblical worldview, all of these things are linked together. Now, from a secular worldview, these are... Delinked, and, and that's on purpose. 
So we've, we've de-linked marriage and having babies. We've de-linked all of these things. And, and so what we have to understand from a biblical worldview is our goal is to, to show, like, hey, hey, all of these things are linked. So as, as we see chaos and as we see our culture spiraling out of control, let, let's, let's analyze why that's happening. Well, part of why that's happening is because we have said as a society, some lives have more value than others. We, we have said for almost five decades, and, and some states in our union continue to say that, that we need to sacrifice our children in the womb so that we can get ahead. We need to sacrifice marriages so that we can climb the career ladder. And, and so we, we have said these things and done these things, and then what happens? Generations that are coming up are, are listening and going, okay, well, I guess I need to put off marriage. I guess I need to abort my child. I guess I need to fill in the blank. And, 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 and so we see these things happening. I guess I need to question my gender. I guess I need to question my identity. And, and the reality is all of these things are linked. That's why over the last few months or so, we've been diving deeper into identity and, and what our culture is trying to do as we analyze that from a biblical world view. And there's a post over at the New York Times, again, that links these things together as well. Now, the New York Times isn't linking this. But if we read this through the lens of a biblical worldview, we get to see like, oh, this is why these things are happening. The title of the article is The U.S. Population is Older Than It Has Ever Been. New census data shows that the country's median age is now over 38. In 1980, it was 30. The median age in the United States reached a record high of 38.9 in 2022, according to data released Thursday by the Census Bureau. It's a rapid rise. In 2000, the median age was 35. In 1980, the median age was 30. Now, why does this matter? While many 38-year-old millennials may still feel young, (laughs) that's literally me, that age is an unusually high median for the country. The new data adds to the evidence that, like many European and Asian nations, the United States is graying, posing challenges for the workforce, the economy, and social programs. Low birth rates are the main driver of the nation's rising median age, experts said. It's simple arithmetic, said Andrew Beveridge, president of Social Explorer, a demographic data firm. Fewer kids are being born. Birth rates fell steeply in the first year or so of the coronavirus pandemic. Since then, they have ticked up. Still, since the beginning of the Great Recession in 2007, fertility has remained very low compared with previous generations. The trend is international, even affecting countries with, such, with much stronger social programs than the United States, like Norway, Sweden, and Finland, which heavily subsidize child care. Again, now I want you to notice right there. Even that little paragraph, the trend is international, even affecting countries with much stronger social programs in the United States, like Norway, Sweden, and Finland, which heavily subsidize child care. So again, this article is saying those countries are better because they, the government steps in. So I, I heard a sermon the other day that said more fathers, less government. So instead of folks looking at this and going, you know what we need is the revival of the family. You know what we need is, is dads to say, I want the baby, I want you, I want us. We need to get married. We need a nuclear family. We need mom, dad, children in the same household. Instead of our, our cultural 
uh, analysts saying these things, what do they believe the answer is? Government subsidies. Why? Because, well, well, the government can be the father. The government can be the mother. The government can be the babysitter. The government can be the educator. And so when we flip these things on their head, and we devalue a traditional family, this is what you get. The article continues, Across industrialized nations, women of the millennial generation have been more likely to prioritize education and work in their 20s, leading them to them marrying older and having fewer children, according, according to researchers. Among states, Maine, Golly, Maine, Maine is, the median age in Maine is 44.8. That's the oldest. With New Hampshire, 43.3, not far behind. Utah, 31.9. The District of Columbia, 34.8. And Texas, 35.5 are the youngest, according to the Census Bureau. Among counties with populations over 100,000, the oldest was Sumner County, Florida, where the village's retirement community is partially based. The median age there is 68. The youngest large county was Utah County, home to the city of Provo, with a median age of 25.7. Not coincidentally, Utah has some of the highest fertility rates in the nation. That's The new census data covers the period up to July 2022. And while it shows the American population is older than it has ever been, the nation remains younger than its peers in Europe, where the median age is 44, said Kenneth Johnson, a demographer uh, at the University of New Hampshire. Immigration has historically kept the United States young as immigrants are generally working age adults and have often more children than native born Americans. While immigration has recovered from rock bottom levels during the pandemic, it has overall slowed since 2016. As the nation ages, it's also becoming more diverse. Between 21 and 22, the nation's Asian population grew by 2.4%, Hispanic population by 1.7%, the black population by 0.9%, and the white population by 0.1%. The native Hawaiian Pacific Islander population increased by 1.8 and the American Indian population by 1.3. Southern and western states have attracted the most new residents in recent years, and those states are also some of the most dynamic uh, demographically, according to the new census data. Among large counties, Kaufman County, Texas, a booming uh, exurb of Dallas, had the nation's fastest growing black population, growing by 21 percent over 6,000 residents between 21 and 22. The median age there was relatively youthful, 33.9 last year. So what does this mean? Again, we are, we're at an interesting place where we have a secular society, a secular culture, a secular government that, that is seeking to devalue marriage. We redefined marriage years ago, and now we're seeing what, what's happened because of that. That was a foot in the door to kind of push all the things that we're seeing today. Now, what, what's going to happen is when, when I say these things, people are like, oh, you're just some kind of religious zealot. No, I'm not. What, what I'm saying is, from a biblical worldview, yes, we should, high, we should put a high value on marriage, a high value on having children, a high value on mom, dad, children living in the same home, a high value on fathers that are willing to step up and do what they need to do, take on responsibility, get out of the basement, get a job, provide, protect. Because what we're seeing, even in areas where it is a, uh, it's secular, 
we have known forever traditional family values are the key. When dad's present, the chances that that kid being abused is, is low. When dad's present, when, when you have a traditional family, the chances of that kid being incarcerated are very low. When, when the family is present, when dad is present, when mom is present in the home, the chances of that kid dropping out of school fall out the bottom. So, so we know these things even in a secular worldview. Yet, we're seeing these numbers play out in the way that, that now we are the replacement age. And what I mean by that, do we have, are we having enough kids that as the population dies, as folks retire, can we sustain Social Security? Can we sustain pensions? There's so many things that can come of this if we are not having enough children to replace the population. So, so even from a secular worldview, if you want to see your society continue, you got to be thinking in those numbers. And unfortunately, we're not thinking like that. We'll talk more when we come back. Safe and sound, stuck in the ground, too lost to be found. You're just asleep. So as we continue today, look, I, again, as I said, all these things are attached. And so when we're looking at our culture through a biblical worldview, I even heard somebody say, oh, it's Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, former House Speaker, uh, was running, a, he was going to be Mitt Romney's vice president, had Mitt Romney won the presidential election in 2008. And he was being interviewed on a morning show, Sunday morning show. And they asked about the cultural war. And, and he said, he's a devout Catholic. And he said, you know, I don't really get hung up in the, in the cultural war. Uh, you know, yes, I, I, I kind of line up with the anti-woke crowd, but I don't get hung up on that. What I want to focus on is economy, our road safe, you know, our community safe, uh, immigration and those type things. Now, that sounds all well and good, but the reality is what, what folks like that don't understand is, is they are now participating in de-leaking all these things. So, yeah, in a, in a saner time, <laughs> it might have been easy to say, look, I don't want to get caught up in what our culture is doing. I just care about the economy, immigration, keeping our people safe, and low taxes. Again, it goes back to, well, pick your battles. So, so in the same way that folks say, well, well we, don't, we don't operate in a theocracy, so take your Jesus out of our government, we always operate in a theocracy. It just depends on who the Theo is. Who is the God? Go listen to our public officials out of Washington, and you tell me if they're not operating with a religion. Now, it may look different than your religion. You go look at some of the parades that have happened over the last month, and you tell me they're not operating in a religion. You go look at what's happened in some of the school board meetings across the country, and you tell me that we don't have folks that are, that are acting as evangelizers, evangelists, for their perspective. You see, it's all a theocracy. It's just who is the theo? And so as we say things like pick your battles or we say things like I don't get caught up in the in the cultural war. Well, as we do that or as we say things and I've been guilty of this, too, I just want to be left alone. Well, how's that working out? There's a recent study out. 
And it's interesting because the, the title says, Desire for Social Status Affects Marital and Reproductive Attitudes, a Life History Mismatch Perspective. And here are some highlights of this study. Attending closely to cues of one's status within a group and engaging efforts to increase or maintain status when cues suggested that status was lacking or waning ensured having sufficient status that was crucial for the access to resources and reproductive success. Cues within modern economically advanced societies chronically induce people to prioritize attaining social status at the cost of marriage and reproduction. The folks with this study argue that modern desire for social status hijacks psychological mechanisms governing life history strategy, leading to delays in marriage and reproduction. A heightened desire to acquire higher social status led to preferences for investing heavily in fewer children rather than spreading one's resources across multiple children. Offspring quality over quantity and for delayed marriage and reproduction. A slower reproductive life history strategy mediated the effects of desire for social status on delayed marriage and reproduction. So what this study did was it looked and said, okay, what's happening in our society? What what are folks prioritizing? Why do we see a, a, a decrease in marriage? Why do we see a decrease in reproduction? Now, you could read the whole study, and I'll post it in the show, show notes, but but my analysis would be this. Again, we have delinked these things. We, we have had parents and grandparents who mean well tell a younger generation coming up, you got to go get that degree. You got to get financially stable before you get married. Put off having kids as long as you can. They meant well. Look, if we believe this is only happening, happening in secular circles, we are mistaken. It's not just happening in secular circles. It's happening across the board. And again, we mean well. You know, when, when I got married, I asked Erin to marry me when we were 21 years old. Actually, the day she turned 22, I was still 21. But the day she turned 22 was the day I asked her to marry me. She was living in, uh, I don't know any other way to say it, like, a, like an outbuilding. <laughs> it was made into an apartment. Today it would be called a tiny home. But, but in, uh, in 2006, tiny homes weren't really a thing. But that's what it was. She was renting it. And so I, I got down on one knee in the living room slash kitchen. And I asked her to marry me. She said yes, and we drove to uh, a Martina McBride concert that night. I think. Pretty, pretty confident. That's, we drove to a concert. I think it was Martina McBride. So we got engaged April of 2006. I was 21. She had just turned 22 that day. We were married September of 2006, just a few months later. Were we financially stable? No. Still in college. Student loan debt. Weren't making a lot of money. I was running a political campaign. I was in my last semester of college. I was selling insurance. I was helping uh, my brother Mo. I was... Uh, 
assisting a, a guy that I went to church with that made horseshoes because I needed extra money. And he said, come in whenever you want to make extra money. So I was helping him. My wife was working at a vet. She was also in school. So, yeah, from the outside, it probably wasn't uh, the financially smart thing to do. We weren't financially stable. We didn't have our degrees yet. I didn't have a job lined up that was going to pay the bills. But we weren't hurting. We made it work. Now, if, if at any point in that time, if, if my mom or my dad or my stepdad or my brothers would have looked at me and said, don't do this, put it off. If, if when I called Aaron's dad and, and asked for his daughter, his only daughter's hand in marriage, and he just said, absolutely not, you're not financially stable, absolutely not, you haven't gotten your degree yet, absolutely not. No, what he said was, absolutely, we'd love for you to be a part of the family. You see, no one in our circle was saying, don't do this. And we got married, and a few years later, we had our first child. And fast forward to today, and we have four beautiful children. We're in a lot better shape financially. But you see, the, the message shouldn't be put off, put off, put off, put off. Because the reality is, if you put off until you're financially stable, when, when is that? Who determines what that is? But what we do know is that the data supports it and studies show it, that when you get married young and, and, and have a family, you're one step ahead of many folks. It's just the reality. The data shows it. Now, I'm not telling Folks listening to this, just go get married at 21 no matter what. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you, you have to get, you, you know, don't wait till you get your degree. Just get married. I'm not saying that. But what I'm afraid is we've taken that option off the table completely. In the same way as culture has, has told young women across this country, you can't possibly have your baby and your dreams. You're going to have to pick one or the other. So what our culture has said is, don't have babies until you get your degree. Don't have babies until you have a job. Don't have babies. But, but when they say don't have babies, they don't mean stop having sex. They mean abort that child and chase your dreams. You see, they delink these things. And now the numbers show that people are now prioritizing climbing the ladder over getting married. People are prioritizing climbing the ladder over having children. People are prioritizing themselves over anyone else. And I've said it before, but if your main goal and mission is the rat race, don't be surprised if you start acting like a rat. What does a rat do? It takes and takes and takes and takes. And so as we think about a year removed from the Dobbs decision, and we have political debates, and we, we talk about life, and we talk about abortion, and we talk about all these things, and, and then you couple that with where our culture is currently with, with identity and with the gender nonsense we see and the insanity that we see 
from Washington and, and state capitals around the country and school board meetings around the country. And, and then we look at the data and the data seems concerning even to secular folks who are saying, hey, hey, we have a problem here if we want to continue society down the road. We have a problem. Now, now, why do we have that problem? You see, again, the secular society, they don't have an answer because they want you to live and let live. But the biblical worldview has an answer. And it's putting things in the proper perspective. We have a high idea of what God has a high idea for. We, there is the high idea of mom, dad, children in the home. And so instead of just looking at your children and saying, put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. Again, I'm not telling them to get married at 20 years old. But, but what I'm saying is, are we having legitimate conversations with our kids? With young people coming up? Are we setting the bar high? Or does our marriage look so rough that our kids don't want any part of it? Were we so bad at this parenting thing that our kids don't want any part of it? My mom had three boys. And now she has 15 grandchildren. Because we, we had a high idea and a high value on marriage and on children. It matters. We'll be back. I never say anything at all, but with nothing to consider, they forget my name. So as we finish up today, look, you know, we, we talked about a lot. We covered a lot. But, but what I want you to take away from this is when we de-link the things of God from each other, and the, the high idea. When we de-link these things, don't be surprised at the end result. So when we see culture in shambles, when, when we see our young people hurting and, and they're telling us that and data point after data point, study after study, when we look at the numbers when, when it comes to the, the most recent data coming out about uh, how far behind some folks are because of the pandemic when it comes to education. When we see these things play out, what are we placing a high value on? You see, we, we can think it's all fun and games and, and you know, we can mock family and we can mock uh, dads and, and, and we can mock moms and, and we can say, you know, put it off as long as possible. You don't want to be held down by that. But those have lasting ramifications. That's just the reality. You can hear everything I'm saying today and disagree with all of it. But the, the lasting consequences of this mindset is playing out right in front of our eyes. And so the question is, are we prepared to do anything about it? I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not, going, I'm not telling you to go run for office. Maybe you should, but I'm not, I'm not telling you that's what you have to do. But, but what I do think we need to do, at the very least, is are we placing a high value on things in our home that God places a high value on? Are we modeling marriage in such a way that our kids would want to have that one day? Are we modeling parenting in such a way that our kids would want to have that one day? Are we elevating the things of God? Or do we find ourselves saying, well, I'm just going to pick my battles. 
or I just want to be left alone. Or I don't really get involved in the culture war and the woke nonsense. I just, I just want to live my life. We tell them little Susie and little Georgie, hey, you know, put it off as long as you can. What if I looked at my children and said the biggest mistake I ever made was getting married at 22 years old? What would that say to them? Again, all I'm saying is perspective. Are we having these conversations? Are we looking around us and saying, okay, where in our lives are we devaluing the things of God? Where in our lives are we delinking the things of God from our everyday lives? I'm reading a great book right now called Kingdom Politics by, by Tony Evans, pastor out of Texas. It is unbelievable. I would highly encourage you to get the book. And you're like, well, I'm not political. I'm telling you, you'll like it. It puts everything in perspective. And, and what Tony is talking about in that book is we have delinked a lot of these things. And again, the, the, the point remains the chaos that we see oftentimes happen is because we have removed God from the things that matter. Not just government, but from our homes, from our schools, from our conversations. And again, many of us, although well-meaning, have pushed folks in the direction of the rat race, have pushed folks in the direction of achieving those dreams and climbing that ladder and acting as if you can't do those things if you have a family. And that is just a lie. How do I know it's a lie? Because I did it. I did it. My wife has done it. At no point were we held back because we got married young. At no point were we held back because we decided to have multiple children. No, we, it is done. And, and, and our story is the story of many, many that have made the same choices. You don't have to put your career on the shelf. You don't have to put your degree on the shelf because you're, you're having a family. I had a conversation with somebody just the other day. Look, you, you, can, you can do both of those things. Well, how do you know? Because I did it. How many of my peers in my last semester of college were getting married that semester? Uh, very few. Now, maybe that's not the path for you, and that's fine. But the question is, are we thinking about these things? Are we thinking about the things that God values? Are we thinking about family structure? Are we thinking about what that means for the biblical worldview that we, that we claim to celebrate, that we claim to live? It's worth the effort. It's worth the time to have these conversations, to think through our own lives, to think through the lives of our children, to think through the lives of our communities. It's worth it. And all this data is showing us that, that we have to make a pivot at some point. Are we prepared to make that pivot? I sure hope so. We'll talk to y'all next time.